You're listening to a bonus episode of the Dairy Age, featuring Chagisk's weekly Let's Talk Dairy webinar series, which is also available as a podcast. Good morning, everybody. You're very welcome to this week's Let's Talk Dairy webinar. We're, we're joined by Joe Patton this morning, um, head of Dairy KT. So, um, Joe, I think we actually have the onerous task this morning. Um, I was talking to a few farmers in Moor Park last week and they spent the full day in the place and, and they didn't get to see everything. But we have to uh, we have to summarise it in 15 minutes. Um but so so look a good morning and we'll um we we'll get stuck into it as such. I suppose in terms of what I will do, Joe, is we'll we'll have a maybe a run through the main boards and if you think there's anything else that that, you, that we want to discuss. So Joe, in terms of big big crowds through the big crowds through the gates of Moor Park last week, I think overall very, very positive uh, feedback has been good. Just to run through Lawrence and Deirdre, I suppose were on the, the the first of the main boards, and a lot of it was it was based around the the, the challenges and and sustainability, and we'd maybe come to the profitability piece because it was well covered off in the second board. Yeah. But the, you know yeah. that environmental sustainability. Yeah, there's been there's been a lot of publications in the last week um, between the MAC EPA documents. So maybe um, talk yeah, to us a little bit about what was discussed. Yeah. We're not going to try and do the whole Moor Park Open Day in 15 minutes, James. Yeah, that's for sure. No. But it's just to try and put some some things on it. And look, we were we were there. It was great to get such a crowd uh, through the place. Um, and look at the variation or the diversity in the crowd was excellent as well, which is great to see. Like there was there was plenty of farmers from the locality and plenty of farmers from from uh, further up the country. And that I think, in fairness, I was just saying that to somebody that you know the, the motorway network in the country has made has made the thing very accessible now like back 20 years ago when we did an open day it was very much uh you couldn't you know people traveling two hours weren't weren't traveling mm. that far but now you have people that have covered a long distance and you can see that and it's really you can see that now that the, the key messages on breeding on on pasture management on things like that have they're, they're, they're sort of they're more universal, if you like, now for 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 all parts of the country, which is a great great thing to see. It's not it's not an idea that this stuff applies to a certain type of land in a certain location. It's not the case at all, and that's that's very good to see. And look, there was a lot of that on the on the on the other boards as well, like the heavy soils program, the drainage program, all of that for the heavier soils and, and other issues as well that were covered. So I think there was something for hopefully there was something for everybody. And if there there wasn't, or there was something missing. You know, I'd love to hear that from people if they want to email in and suggest stuff that we missed out on. You know, I'm very conscious of that. This is a farmer's day. It's you think about it, it's funded by farmers really through dairy levy. It's for farmers' benefit, essentially. And you know, Pat Dillon made that point very strongly at the end that ultimately the, we all talk about these key stakeholders, but sure, the key stakeholders in all this is the to me, anyways, always, and that's what Pat said strongly on the day, like the people that are milking cows morning and evening, that's what the day is about, like, you know, and that's what it's, so if there's something missing or there's something that you thought you weren't happy about or that we could improve on, by all means, drop us a line and we'll we'll, we'll take it on board, okay? But look at the first, without going through the detail on things, look at, you know, the sustainability, we were making that point at the very start, sustainability is nearly, the use of the word sustainability is becoming unsustainable, like there's that much <laughs> sustainability, where does it stop? So we had to break it down and make sure we were talking about something specific and the specifics here were really sort of greenhouse gases, water quality, obviously the economic sustainability, the which is a labour thing, um, and then your social sustainability as well. 
sorry, the economic sustainability, then your social sustainability is really around making dairy farms a good place to work. And then the mm-hmm. whole question of, you know, animal welfare and the question of maybe, you know, the, the question on dairy beef came into it quite a bit as well. So, but what was encouraging on the day was that, look, at there's a lot of stuff, positive stuff happening on farms that dairy farms have taken a lot of stuff, are taken and will take a lot of stuff on. Um, they're all challenges, obviously, but a lot of it is beneficial from a farm profitability point of view, from a labour point of view. We don't, we're not in the business of lecturing to people. We're just po- pointing the direction we think people could go. And, you know, like you can see it even, that, that was one thing actually on the first board that stood out actually, and it surprised people, the water quality status, right? And uh, they showed the, 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 the data from, say, river nitrate quality from 2014 to 2022. And it surprised some people to say it, that actually the proportion of high-quality water bodies has actually increased a bit and the number of unsatisfactory water bodies has decreased a bit. And another thing to point out there is that the very low quality have really dropped. So that's probably against the prevailing narrative out there, but it's it's good for, I think, good for dairy farmers to hear that, that actually with good practice, um, and proper practice, like there's no excuse for poor practice, but with good practice and maybe a bit more, um, a, bit, a bit tighter management um, around fertilizer and certainly on slurry and that, there's possibilities to improve water quality within 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 the current configuration and numbers, which was a positive a positive message. But it doesn't mean we're not saying there's an issue with water quality. We're it's saying that water quality can and should be managed by good yeah. practice. That's yeah. And I suppose, that, look, as you said, the key point there is that the, the trends are positive in terms of what farmers have done over the last number of years is having a positive impact on water quality. And th- look, at there's a lot more measures in play over the last 12, 18 months as yeah. well, Joe. Yeah. But 12, 18 months is a short time frame. And we have to say, yeah. too, that, you know, that water quality is th- the trends are relatively positive but they're also quite variable because weather plays a significant role so we have to manage within those we have to manage within the weather the prevailing uh, conditions i suppose but it's not the yeah it's 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 not that we were drawing lines to say that this is that there's a catastrophic reduction in water quality it's the water quality is stable improving slightly but at the same time that's not to say that um, there isn't work to do. There are still too many water bodies that are maybe in the unsatisfactory uh, category, but the, the route to improving them, you know, good practice at farm level is a major part of that, among a lot, a lot, a lot of other things. But it's still, we can play our part on that, I suppose, um, from a research point of view, but also, the, you know, from a farm practice point of view as well. Very good. I suppose the second half of that board, and maybe I'll tie in the publication that was announced yesterday in terms of the new MAC curve, but was really around, I suppose, those two elements here to cover in terms of the practices that are available to farmers, Joe, but also, I suppose, the practices, the technologies for tomorrow as such. And I think people have seen that the new revised MAC curve um, ultimately was 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 published yesterday and is available mm. for everybody to see. And yeah. I, I think the first one was about 30 pages long. I think this one is 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 400 pages long. So it'll tell you in terms of the detail that's there. But I suppose give us a little bit of a, give our farmer viewers a little bit of a feel there in terms of what's there, what's ready made that's going to make an impact. And I suppose um, what's in the pipeline as such. Yeah, look, it's a it's a good question. And, you'd have, you know, it's it's a really difficult one that people are wondering you know where am I getting credit for this, or how do how do we actually engage on this this whole question? But look at a couple of things to say here. 
Um, and it was laid out clearly at the open day, I think, as well, is that there are technologies for, you know, there are practices for today and there are technologies for tomorrow as well. So there are all, there'll always be stuff in the pipeline from a research point of view. And, you know, we're asking for some, I don't mean patience, but we're, we're sort of, we're asking for some understanding that these things are ongoing and there's a, there's a lot of stock, like just to make the point, even on something like methane additives, there are a lot, there are hundreds of animals at the moment in Chagas on trials on those those options. Those trials take time. They're, they're relatively slow. There's a lot of work that has to be, you have to be 100% sure on them. There's a lot of positive questions, there are a lot of positive results coming there. But just to reassure people, like there are literally hundreds of animals on these type of trials at the moment. And those results will feed out and have been included in the new MAC, you know, the, the potential for those uh, things. But the, the concern we would have slightly, though, James, is that people might be thinking that they're waiting for this magic bullet solution to arrive and that suddenly we're going to have this thing that we can either put on the ground or put Don't the, the cows or whatever. Suddenly, hey, presto, the, games, the, you know, the, the game is won. The thing when you look at the Mac and when we talk about a Mac, you know, it was explained well yesterday. It's really the cost. It's the it's the abatement. It, it's the marginal abatement cost curve, which basically means the things you can do to make a difference to, to, to greenhouse gases and then the relative cost of each of those options, right? So, like, um, and one thing that stuck out, really struck out yesterday was that when you look at the MAC curve, all the different um, options are in there. So, for example, EBI and limon and clover and, you know, fertilizer formulation and the feed additives and slurry, slurry treatment and all that. But there's a pile of different options in there or a pile of different um, a- actions in there. It's not as if, you know, feed additives, for example, was the big, big part and then these other bits were all small bits. It's really made up. If you look at the total MAC to get you to where you need to go, there's 13 or whatever it is, thir- somewhere around 13 or 14 different measures. And all of them are going to be needed to be implemented at a relatively high rate at farm level. So, for example, reduced age of slaughter is a big, big one. Um, low emission slurry spreading is a big one. Fertilizer type is a big one. Uh, and there's no point in focusing on just one of them. You have to kind of do a bit of them all. But the marginal yeah. bit, the cost curve in those would say that an awful lot of the options that are available to farmers are actually cost-neutral, if actually slightly beneficial from a profit point of view. So let's take, for example, if you increase your EBI, applied some lime, got your chemical fertilizer rates down by increasing your clover and your soil fertility, switched to protected urea, um, you know, you had, let's say, um, low emission slurry spreading, for example, there was something in time about maybe slurry management, slurry acidification or whatever, and maybe in time, you know, in the next, and we're talking within a couple of years, maybe some some additives fed to, at certain points of the year when it's suitable to do so. That's the kind of what it looks like. It's yeah. not as scary maybe as what you might have thought people, originally. People so that's one thing. Yeah. So it's not we the first thing, the first major point there is that it's a combination of a pile of different measures. And a lot of the big ones aren't cost that costly to farmers at all. Uh, but the second major point, I suppose, is the the lads drew, like Gary Lanigan put the report together and his team, and it was very comprehensive, as you say, but they've modeled out a huge number of scenarios. And you look at the Mac in one scenario versus the other scenario, and you're saying in one case, you're getting close to five megatons of a reduction. And in the other case, you're getting less than three, right? If if you get to the five, you've met your, the, the industry has met its target, actually. If you fall short of the three, you haven't met your target. So 
but the measures, the, to, the, the, the total number, or sorry, the, the actions in each Mac are the same. It's the same practices. The only difference between meeting the target and not meeting the target is actually the level of adoption or the level of uptake of these things at FarmLab. Right. Yep, and there's, so, there's assumptions within there, Joe, in terms absolutely. of, and and that that's the key point, I suppose, that you're saying is it's really about getting these in play. Um, a lot of them already are on farms, but making sure that there's high levels of adoption really is going to yeah. be the driver. So, so for example, you know, the reduced age of slaughter one, for example, right, and that comes down to genetics used by dairy farmers. By the way, that's not just that's not in the beef farmers' um, remit. It's not, remit. It's, there's a big part to be played by dairy farmers as far as the genetics used for that. But like, for example, that could be anywhere from you know, based on one mac versus the other, like that could be anywhere from sort of three hundred to to, to six hundred. Or seven hundred, depending on, you know, or point. I should say from point three to point six megatons. I suppose that's a significant difference, and that totally depends on the, the the how much the industry takes it up. So you know, we could do all the trials we want on feed additives, but if they never get out on farms, deliver of any effect. Yeah. Uh, similarly with DBI. So that's that's the point. So the big thing to remember. It was very positive. I taught yesterday. Actually, I, I came away from it. Uh, you know, definitely re- sort of re- re- reinvigorated that this is actually doable, which is a big message, actually, that there's a plan there to say that the industry can meet its its significant and its challenging targets, that the, 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 um, the technologies are there, there's no silver bullet, there's a pile of different things have to be done. And at the same time, the big key, the key part of it is the adoption bit. Can we get more people doing simple things to do it? And that's that's it, like, which is... Jeez, it's not bad, like from where we were a couple of years ago, I would say. Yeah, there's a few questions coming in there and, and I'll try and fit them in as, as we go. We have a fair bit to cover, but I suppose one of them was Lawrence presented the carbon footprint. Um, the average for industry was 0.88 mm. um, kilos of carbon per, per kilo of fat and protein corrected milk. This has been revised down as such, I suppose, was the question. You know, have, have we been overstating it, I suppose? And and where is the trend even, Joe, within that? Um how how has that been tracked? Yeah, it's a good, it's a very it's a very it's a very good question. And look, you see, I can understand why when people see, see these things changing, it's very easy to see, or not easy, I don't mean that it's very understandable to sort of think, well, sure, this these figures, what do these figures even mean, right? So think about this. The original estimation on on um, on the methane output was based on work from you know 15, 20 years ago on sort of chamber work silage based diets. As the work in Moor Park has progressed and in Grange too, and in Johnstown, but you know, in, in across those across those centres, we can see now and we've measured it that the um methane emissions from animals grazing high quality pasture is less than what was assumed when we took the original figure. We're not saying that the the old figure was wrong, and we're not saying that the new figure is right, but what we're saying is, like who, it's more, what we're really saying is that we're getting to a more precise figure, if that makes sense. There will always be room to improve the prediction in the figure, but what we're saying is that certainly based on that, that we're getting a more precise figure, and the more precise figure would say that the 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 that the methane output from dairy cows uh, or any of you know cattle grazing high quality swords was essentially overestimated relative to um, to what it actually is based on what's being measured. 
Okay. And that makes sense because, you know, methane is down to digestibility as well and then to the composition. And it's very, very different thing to be grazing high quality pasture versus grazing eating semi semicided. So there's there's issues there um, and th- that will help for sure. And some of the other things as well. So, for example, there'll be new, there is new work showing that obviously that we know the story on protected jury and how important that is. And that has to be, you know, we have to be just definitive on that that it is the thing to use and i know there's issues and people say it doesn't work and all the rest of it in dry ground but that's the work that all the research work is pointing the wrong direction that it's 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 very very positive right but like there will be new work coming through that for example 18 6 10 12 and 10 10 20 will have a lower a lower um footprint than than um sort of more like the 27 two and a halves or that because of the difference in the nitrogen composition so all of those things give us a more precise figure if you get me so yeah, yeah we are moving we are moving down but the, the, we we can't rely on you know more precise measures coming to say that that's the only thing that has to happen to to improve the situation james we also have to engage the technologies that are there we can't sit around waiting on a new figure to come for grazing cows and uh, an additive to come to solve the problem. We have to engage on EBI, dairy genetic, dairy beef genetics, the, um, the question on soil fertility, clover, and um, fertilizer type. Those are things we need to be doing. And these other bits help as well. Okay. Yep. We need them all. That's the point, you know. We need Okay. We're, go- we're going to, I'm, I'm going to take it now because obviously there was a forum on it and those conversations around it and then we'll try and maybe move on to some of the other stuff um the conversation around around the derogation uh, the nitrous derogation um 25220 mm-hmm. um the feeling around that the, the conversation around that at Moor Park what, what what was said um Look, yeah. So that that question was around. Um, we had we had Department of Ag, we had farmers as well, and we had we had Eddie Borges from the Catchings Program. Okay, now, yeah, okay. So the the um the issue there, obviously, from from dropping from two twenty two fifties out to two twenty based on um based on water quality trends. That was the discussion. Okay, and the new maps and all the rest of it. So there is, there are, there are issues around that. That they were they were well aired on the day um, from from the new the proposed EPA maps plus what 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 that from what we're talking about on the day, I suppose like the Chagas role in this to be clear is not you know the Chagas role in this is to provide the data and provide this provide the scientific data for what's happening right and that really what the Chagas input to that section on the day was really came strongly from 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 Eddie on the, the catchments program mm-hmm. and it was really around the trends in the water quality um, within those catchments and what's happening there and he took different examples of catchments that were you know let's say more more intensive less intensive with different levels of stock and rate different you know different enterprises within them and some of the catchments that had that were operating within a high number of farms within derogation at 250 were showing that water quality was actually improved stable or improving and the water quality in other catchments was excellent as well. And then we had differences based on weather. So there was, the main point there from the child was that there is a weather effect or there is a temporal effect and that practices might be as important. Practices are as are more important than as important or more important than the overall load. It's the management of the load is important, right? That's coming from the catchments. Along with that then, and it was on some of the boards where Elodie's modeling work was looking to at, if you take the total amount of difference that you're, that's required in terms of um, in, in in terms of the, the nitrate losses to, to water. What is the total comp? What is the um, 
the contribution, if you like, of each of the different measures. And like the difference in a, in in on the assumption that there's a well-managed system in place and that there's adequate slurry storage and all of those things are in place like they need to be and should be, that a change from 250 to 220 on a free drain a free drain and mineral soil, that it was a relatively small effect on the groundwater or sorry, the nitrate losses water. That, that was the that's the outcome of the modeling. It's also probably mirrored by what's happening on the ground in the catchments, right? And that's that's what Chagas can, has to say about it. And it's all there in the nitrogen report. Now, where it goes after that is a different question, and that's beyond our remit. Uh, but that's what the Chagas data and what the Chagas report um clearly shows that 250 to 220 is not. In, in terms of being a definitive slam dunk for improving water quality, that's not what the modeling would show and it's not what the catchments would show. But at the same time, that's not to say that, you know, that there isn't an issue to be dealt with in terms of water quality. That's a separate thing. But we have to be precise about what measures we take and what changes we make um, in order to improve the situation where it needs to be improved. Okay? Lovely. Um, there's a couple other bits I definitely want to touch on and, and we're going to give you more than 15 minutes show which I thought was going to happen um, the profitability side I suppose um, the, yeah. our dairy systems how do they look I suppose there was a big focus on the second board with regards one of the key KPIs was the amount of grazed pasture in our diets I think it shocked a lot of farmers there in the day ultimately Joe that that, that has reduced um, over the last number of years, mm. um, uh, slightly, albeit slightly, but it has reduced. Talk to me around that in terms of the messages around stock and rate, uh, how I suppose how it dictates our systems, because I think there was there was really strong messaging on that on the day. Yeah, we love all, we love this old crack, James. Um, to see a, a favorite of yours and maybe a favorite of mine as well. Um, it's a funny one, right? <laughs> you talk to some farmers and. It's the last 20 cows that are making them the money. And then you talk to other farmers in the exact same position and they're saying it's the last 20 cows that's costing the money. Somebody has to be wrong here, right? Somebody has to be wrong. So the overall p- point of that board is that, you know, and it's I have said this a few times in the past, that the, the, the stocking rate is a question of optimized stocking rate, not maximized stocking rate, right? And that's important, an important distinction. And when we talk about stocking rate, we need to look at the whole farm basis as well. We need to say, where are we at from a feed security point of view? And the clear data from profitability figures, leaving the labor out of it for a second, and we come back to that in a second, but from an animal performance point of view, from a from a from a profitability point of view, the clear uh message is that once you cross, once you begin to cross the um move away from being self-sufficient for feed or for forage, right? Particularly for forage, you do begin to move yourself into a situation where, you know, profitability differences are marginal at best and risky when things are bad from a high feed cost point of view or indeed from a low milk price point of view, right? So the risk in the system is actually, um, is quite significant. And like, we're not talking here about very lowly stock systems. You're still talking, you know, in for a lot of farms based on average grow rates and pasture base, you're still talking about a stocking rate that's up at the sort of 2.3 to 2.4 in and around that whole farm. That's not lowly stocked. That is not lowly stocked. That is, if you can't make enough feed in the in the system to cover yourself, you're highly stocked. 
And if you're growing 10 tons of grass and you're at index one for pea, for example, and you have out farms that aren't growing as much as they should, but you have them on the maps and you're only growing 10 tons, then two cows per hectare, two livestock units per hectare is probably highly stocked. So there's a there's a there's a need to link it to, to grass production and grass growth. And it's definitive and clear that when you've got farms that focus on producing more high quality forage as it obviously graze grass being the one, but also closing the gap or closing this clo- closing the loop from a winter feed point of view as well. It's a very safe and very comfortable place to be in relative terms. The people that are struggling and up and down a little bit are where they're chasing their tail for um for the next bite. And that it brings a lot of stress. It brings a lot of stress into the situation as well. And just one point, I know I'm rabbiting here a wee bit, but it's something that happens. Sometimes it comes up and I have a lot of sympathy for it. I, I'm, I know the story. You know, it's, well, I'm, I have a small land base, so therefore I have no choice to be highly stocked, right? It probably would surprise people to, to surprise, surprise enough when you look at the figures. There is no link between scale and stocking rate in the, um, in the profit monitor figures. Yeah. So you have high, highly and lowly stocked at high and low scale. And I would ask the question that for farms that are at a relatively smaller land base, don't assume that jacking up the stocking rate is the, is the solution because that brings a very high fixed cost. And you also are in a situation where it's owner-operator scale. And those extra cows do create a lot of extra labour input. Don't do it. I would be saying that limited land base is a bad reason to be talking about very very high stocking rates and i think you ha- we can't we have to go further than just saying that now we have to do the sums for the individual farm but don't make the assumption i know a few i know a few people personally actually that are running relatively you would call them relatively lower scale farms they're doing a bloody good job with um a stocking rate of about 2.4 milking their 70 to 80 cows in around that and have a good lifestyle a good income they're not stressed they're not overburdened with capital cost and they're not looking at squeezing the last out of it and losing their losing the, their advantage. Actually, is re, they can do things at really low cost. You lose that advantage if you jack up the stock rate because you think your your base is too small. So be careful on that. Is what I'd be saying. Yep, very good. So it's really, I suppose, message there is for every individual to what are you growing and ultimately as a result, what stock rate can you um, can, can you carry, yeah, can, yeah. can you officially sustain it's 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 age old you know, stuff really but... it's the one you know you've got people that maybe invest heavily in in additional machinery or whatever in order to carry these extra few cows and don't do your sums based on averaging those decisions across the whole herd do the sums based on the extra cows that you're carrying so if you're going to produce and if you're going to carry an extra 20, 15 cows, for example, and do another 80,000 litres of milk, for example, the cost of all those additional things that you have to do to carry those cows should be costed against that extra 60 or 80,000 litres, not against the whole milk pool. And it, the sum looks different if you do it that way. And as you said, the conversation there around stock and rate isn't policy derived. It's ultimately there. It, it's it's, it's, it's economic. That's, yeah, that, it, do you know what I mean? Not yeah. to get confused there. Absolutely. And it's a very it's a very important distinction. And I, I think we have to keep those two things separate. The optimal stock and rate from an economic point of view is one question, and that has to be looked at an individual basis. The question of a stock and rate versus water quality is an entirely different question. They sound like the same thing, but they're not. Uh, and we have to keep the, the, we have to keep those separate in the conversations because yeah. um, it's 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 not to me it's not a good we could we could end up sort of getting cross wires there if we start talking about you know um, 
legislative stocking rate versus optimal from an economics point of view. Those two things might be the same thing in farm level at all. Yep. <laughs> One thing I've seen got a bit of interest and in, uh, just keeping an eye on Twitter. Um, uh, this whole question of of, of labour, Joe, and and labour efficiency. Too much time in your hands, James. If you're spending it all on Twitter, so you're not you're not busy. It's not within the working days. So was all right. Um, ultimately, I suppose there, there there was a little bit of I suppose discussion around this idea of a fifty hour week in spring, and I don't know was the point lost a little bit in terms of the conversation yeah. around labour efficiency and what drives it maybe rather than is it 50, is it 60, you know, what is it? And that's going to differ slightly for farms. But explain a little bit, I suppose, in terms of uh, the discussion there on the day. Yeah, it's, an, it's, a, it's a good question. And, you know, I suppose it was said to me along the way to um, 50 hours a week, like, is that what he is on about? Is that realistic at all? I suppose, look, it's a tricky one. And first thing to say, you know, there's nobody under any illusions. Like, remember that most people, or a lot, I'm not saying most people, but an awful lot of people that were on duty on the day, they, they grew up on farms, they know the story, they know what it's like, they've got family members at home, they've got doing some some helping out themselves. We know what it is, what a dairy farm is like in the spring. There's nobody under any illusions around that. And the 50-hour week for the individual at the peak point of the year, is not probably doable, and there's nobody saying it is right. We accept that. There's obviously a, there's obviously a um, a peak period of, of of work, right? But the interesting part of it is, it's to me anyway, right? We can say, you know, there's such a focus on labour in the spring. And unrightly so, because the work needs to be done. Obviously, the work needs to be done. But there's also an interesting dynamic out there. And Martina's work, is, Martina Gormley's work has picked this up a little bit. It's that the working day doesn't shorten from now on in the year. So from July to, to December, the working day doesn't actually shorten by that much. Right? And that's a legitimate question. Why are we... Is if it, like I would argue, I would say it's forget about the spring for the moment, and that's a separate issue because that has to be dealt with, and it's a peak period, and we have to suck it up in a way. And that's the wrong term, but you know what I'm saying. The question is more about this time of the year. So July to September into October, November, you know, for a lot of people, maybe you know, particularly with young families and all the rest of it, kids are off school and all the rest of it, is a 50-hour week feasible at this time of the year? Right, and is there? I'll, I'll say it and I'll be shot for saying it, but is there is there a is there a culture of presenteeism on dairy farms in a way? Are we are we do we, we sort of we, we we need to be seen to uh, well I don't know we, like there's a lot of people that are I, I know again this is not I I'm only asking the question I'm not saying you can say no and tell me I'm wrong that's fine but there is there is a thing and it's into that and you can see it there there are there are certainly when it's less busy times of the year there is a sort of a waiting around to milk type of thing happening and that's fine i mean i would say that on a lot of farms on average they could take an hour and a half out of the day very easily by moving milking time you know average milking time is still after five o'clock it could be back to half three or four this time of the year and onwards and that could take um every day of the year that could or every day from now on that would take two that's taking 15 hours a week out of the day sorry 15 hours a week out of the week so there are things can be done so i don't think we should be arguing over the 50 hour week and saying it's unfeasible i would be saying we have to be there we have to make the we have to be there from an animal 
performance and animal welfare point of view for all of those things in the spring, no question. But we have to get help in at that period. But to me, the challenge, the bigger challenge in a lot of dairy farms is can they rationalize their workload after the peak period? You know, that's yeah. a that's a that's that's a it's a, it's a kind of it's a related question. And I'm not saying that I think people need to ask that question of themselves. You know, can they can they cut 15 hours a week out by changing a few practices? And I think on a lot of farms it could be the case. And there's things there I think maybe were were were, were maybe missed, and and that headline figure was yeah. caught. And it's it's things around f- facilities, technologies, yeah. a little bit of work organisations. You know, all of those yeah. things and is, look, is, is I, where it's at. It's, as as well as that too. Look, there's a huge issue here on scale, right? Because I know the hours per cow thing drives people bananas, right? So hours per cow, you can be very efficient on an hours per cow basis, right? You can get that down to, you know, let's say twenty hours a cow or something like that, or maybe less, right? But hours you could be you could have a really good hours per cow figure and you could still be absolutely stretched and stressed, right? Because scale versus hours per cow is important. So the total hours worked is important as well, not just the efficiency. And you can see actually that for a lot of people, it's a 70 hour a week. You'd have lots of people doing 70 and 80 hour weeks, and one guy could be very poor efficiency per cow, and one guy could be really good efficiency per cow. So they're carrying more cows and getting more, maybe getting through more work or whatever. But at the same time, you know, whether you're very like, what difference does it, what difference does five hours per cow make to you, or what's the bigger difference, five hours per cow or 20 hours a week? Yeah. The individual yeah. person still needs to be able to have a bloody life around all the things. So there's, we need to look at the two metrics together and I think we can do a lot more around simplifying things a little bit and not being nailed to the nailed or nailed into the yard all the time, particularly when there are opportunities to 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 to, to make it different. It, the opportunities might be there in February, March, but they are there in July, August, September. Absolutely. I've, I have a couple of other things I need to get to, um, and I was afraid this might happen, but but they're still here listening to you, Joe, which is a good sign. Um, the idea of breeding, and I suppose we, we, we couldn't go today without ultimately, I suppose, talking to farmers and, and taking calls from farmers in terms of there was an RTE program aired Monday night. Um, there's lots of concerns as an industry. Nobody wants to see uh, that sort of footage and I suppose it, it 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 fits in with what Donna and his team I suppose part of it was talking about in terms of future breeding policies where is it at and and just a comment from yourself in terms of look at your heading up the, the the dairy advisory program just maybe a comment about that and 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 what have we been doing and what are we doing on the ground type of thing yeah um obviously uh first of all you know from a from a Chagas perspective yeah there's we did we did release a statement yesterday and there's obviously no um no condoning of of, of some of the some of the actions and footage seen on, on on the program on, on Monday night, that's for sure. And that's all, you know, we've 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 released our statement on that and that's clear. Okay. Um one thing I would say as well is that I would be very encouraged and I would be very encouraged actually, and I think it's a very positive thing that um a lot of far- a lot of dairy farmers and a lot of people that are being very diligent in their own yard and very diligent with their own stock have been in contact, been very annoyed about this. Not been annoyed because of the perception, but annoyed because of the of what they saw from an animal handling and animal an animal management and animal handling point of view. So, you know, it's it's very possible that 
some of the people that are most denied about this are actually dairy farmers who are doing a bloody good job managing their own stock in the first place. And their voice and their efforts have to be recognised and, 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 and acknowledged as well. From a breeding point of view, James, I, I think it's important, though, just to say, like, you know, you know, um, remember even come back 30, nearly 30 years or more at this stage for myself and as a young lad going to bring in calves to marts and stuff like that and, you know, as a young kid, you would have seen practices by individual people that you weren't happy with 30 years ago. So this is not it's simply an issue that is linked and it was very it's not definitively linked to, to expansion or increased numbers in the dairy in the dairy herd. It's down to the management and practices of individual and um, wherever their animals being housed and managed and moved through. The, the, the legislation is clear and the, the standards are clear. And they have to be adhered to whether there's. You know, whether that is in 1995 or 2005 or 2015 or 2025, these issues have been, they're there in certain cases and they have to be regulated out of the, they have to be regulated out of the industry. So that's, it, to me, it was a lot about poor practice. And I think it's it's dangerous enough to be saying that it's driven entirely by um, by by expansion or by scale. That's a point. Second quick point on that, again, and a similar one, it is to me, it's not legitimate to draw the line between larger herds and poor welfare. I know that's not a popular thing to say, maybe, but I know dealing with some very large scale herds that the standard of animal management and animal welfare is exemplary. Uh, animal from a from a from a management point of view, from a calf mortality point of view, from lameness management, all of those things, fantastic effort and really, you know, really, really strong. So it's not down to, it's not down to scale of operation. And on the other hand, you have some smaller scale herds where you would say exactly the same thing. The animals are minded like pets, basically. On the other hand, you've got big issues of welfare on some farms, a small, small percentage, but they're there. uh, And that they could be very large scale or very small scale farms. So divorce this from scale. And talk about practice, right? That's yeah. that's an important point. From a from a Chagas point of view, like we've you think about this, and 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 the calf care events have been running for nearly ten years now, emphasizing excellent management at the point of calving, post calving, in the calf rearing phase, and they've been very very positive. The colostrum story, the one two three. If we say colostrum one two three, most farmers know what you're talking about. And actually, we were over on a on a unit in in Belgium a few years back, um, a calf rearing unit over there. And the question was asked to me by the farmer: actually, what has happened in Ireland in the last few years? Because the health status of the calves in Ireland, he would say, has massively improved their immune status, and that's down to people doing a better job on colostrum over the years, right? So there's been a huge amount of improvement in that. We spent a lot of time talking about calf housing. I think there's more can be done on farms about calf housing, investing in it. Um, we've done course. We do courses with all our students. We do courses with um, with with the trade as well, or with people animal handling courses. All that kind of stuff is done. There's a huge program on dairy beef. It's that's not going on just yesterday. That's going on since you know new pro renewed programs in 2008, 2009. But you go back to the early mid 90s in Grange. I'm sitting in Grange today, and there's there's been programs since since the mid 80s on on calf rear in in Chagas. So this is not. It's it's not the lack of it's not the lack of research I would say so there's a pile of stuff going on there the dairy beef 500 stuff the every calf project you know green acres all of that stuff there's a pile of good information there but from and the dairy beef index is another part of it, and that was mentioned at the Moor Park Open Day so again similar to what we talked about on the Mac 
the engagement with something like dairy beef index is what's going to really make the difference. So can we get more farmers willing to use better quality um, genetics from a beef point of view to improve the calf crop quality so there's a, a better prospect of a margin for the people rearing them? That's an important step that dairy farmers can take. However, you know, um, even looking at the footage the other night, it's, it, there were it, there was plenty of high you would say high beef merit calves involved in some of the on some of the scenes. Yeah. It's not we we need to say high beef merit calves is one thing, but the practices and the handling have to be good as well. We can't we can't have it's not all down to um, poor quality calves uh, for sure. So look, there's a lot to be there's a lot to be positive about. I would say. Um, dairy farmers can play their part. I would say maybe you you've seen it too, but there's been an awful lot more interest in picking bulls for the for the for the dairy side, and across all types of herds, there make more effort being made. And that's uh, I, I, I think Joe ultimately even Nikki Byrne there, who's who's heavily involved in the research on that yeah. dairy cap to beef side, has said that he said in terms of when you look at the the quality of stock coming through over the last number of years is improving year on year, and I think we have to be positive in terms of we rolled out with dairy discussion groups and dairy clients a conversation all spring around this and it was very very positive in terms of the uptick so yeah, i don't think there's any, I, I, I don't think there's a, a, the conversation around calf quality calf quality um from a beef merit is improving all the time but as you say that isn't going to um cure any issues with regards in terms of the handling of livestock and that but then but those are legislated for underneath that needs to be you know we need to be clear on that but we do we do have to say though and i think it's maybe one thing i would just say to you know we've tossed this around with with, with some groups and whatever else there was an interesting point it's that one chap made to me at a, at, a, at a meeting um down the country a few a few months back he said look his perspective on this was he has to go in and identify within his breeding policy, where the biggest risk is um, on producing calves that would be lower lower value calves. And he would say that like the male calves from heifers would be an would be an issue if they're from a dairy, you know, from a dairy heifer with a male, a male, male dairy from a from a heifer can, can be a very small calf. They can grow into a very acceptable animal, but at that three, you know, at that Age at sale, there there can be a re- can be smaller looking than 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 they should be. So like you're saying that okay, how do we, you know, how do we go in and say well, using sex semen, using dairy beef, using maybe more AI overall, can we target that the, the animals that are least um, that are big that are highest risk and 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 in terms of having a, a lower value calf and make sure that they're they're covered with something that produces either a heifer calf or a higher beef merit calf overall. And targeting the breeding is is the thing. Like to be fair, we have people that are on the Dairy Beef Five Hundred program that really like rearing the Frisian bull calf, and there are some very good quality Frisian bull calves born. If they're healthy and well managed, and maybe traded farm to farm, they're a very acceptable product as well. But they need that certain level of beef trait. But I think each individual farm can plan a little bit more and say, you know what, I can I can produce on average, a calf crop that's better, but with a particular focus on removing the highest risk animals out of the system. That's Absolutely. <laughs> One last quick point. Um, the last main board was around grassland management and sustainable uh, uh, grazing management. Yeah. Obviously a big focus of clover there uh, in terms of incorporation of clover and reducing our nitrogen inputs. Um, but one thing, I suppose, which, which Mick alluded to was that that there's, I suppose, that grass that's available mid-season, and um, making sure we're making best use of it. And I know it's a, 
it's one that uh, that bugs you and me by times. Just a, a comment on that, and I'm going to have to call it that because yeah. we've next week's edition and this week as well. Yeah, look, very quickly on that, um, I suppose, yeah, it was it was an interesting point. One, one, a couple of quick things on that. First of all, the average growth rate in Ulster, in 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 Connacht, in Leinster, and we're delighted to see we're match twelve point nine tons, right? Um, no All Ireland's and Ulster this year, but at least we can match them for growth rate. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you never know. You we'll, never take know. Sol- we'll take solace uh, of that. <laughs> oh, look at so first thing is distribution growth rate very similar. Now there will be differences maybe in in some of the drier areas they've got really good spring growth and then they have maybe a deficit in the summer and it might be the other yeah. way around. But it's about knowing your grass growth curve. But at thirteen tons, you're saying. You know, where's where's your average stock rate likely? And it has to be matched on average to that. The big one is on, in mid-season. It was a very good point that, that the lads were making that, you know, you look on pasture base even yet, and everyone has their grass growth, or sorry, their demand set to 15. And um, that's assuming the demand of, let's say, stopped at four with silage crowd out, that's a demand of 60. When really, probably the herd could eat 17 or 18, which is more like a demand of 70. So, you know, there's not, point, not much point in growing this grass and then not offering it to, within the context or within the confines of ensuring that yeah. um, post-grazing residuals are met, obviously. But there's a couple of kilos of grass there in mid-season that could, uh, and particularly if you go with clover sports where you do have maybe a pushing growth, maybe, or, a, or a, a cheaper growth, maybe at that time of the year, there's potential for an extra two, couple of kilos. That has been fed as concentrated at the moment. And the question is, you know, for people, can we get an extra two kilos per cow into the cows or an extra kilo and a half of grass or two kilos into the cows, but at the same time dropping out possibly a kilo and a half or so of concentrate that the standard of nutrition is the same for the cow, but it's made up of two of a different, a much cheaper feed. An interesting proposition. Look at this, the question on, and we quit now, but the question on sort of the, the, the potential for clover to fix maybe up to 100 kilos of nitrogen per hectare is a really positive story. There's a lot of management issues around that. We know grass 10 are going to be out. We're not getting into it today. They'll be covering it in their grass workshops and maybe events later in the year. But look at simple message, match your stocking rate. Look at that mid-season. Are we pinching cows is, is the question. Are we are we pinching cows on the one hand and then feeding it back as concentrated on the other? Um, and can we get serious about the clover, the clover question. Because look, between Moor Park, between Solihead, all the work done, Bally Hale stuff as well. There's a great story there on clover. A lot of work done over the years. Um, Deirdre with with, with um, Clannacilty as well, with Brian, James in, in Solihead, bit in Bally Hayes too. You know, there's a lot to be seen. And go along to some of those farms someday and have a look and see what you think. That's what I'd be saying. Uh, look at Joe. We appreciate that. Um, we've run over, but we, we we'll call it a bonus edition, I suppose, for for those that didn't make Moor Park 2023. And really, I suppose we wanted to have a conversation and highlight um, the good messages that were uh, at the open day. As always, very informative. I want to thank people yeah. for their comments and questions. There's a few there which we, we'll get back to people. I didn't get to them all. Um, as you've seen, we had a lot to get through, but we will get back to you. And just one thing, James, like, I mean, one final thing. Look, it was great to have a crowd there in Moor Park. And I know it's a big day and there's a lot to get around and all that. But, you know, for people that maybe are chairing discussion groups or they're, um, you know, they have discussion groups and they're always looking for sort of places to go and things to do in, in September and October and that, 
you know, give us a call if we'll fit you in in either in in a, in a, in a center or in, on a research farm as best we can as part of an overall um, group trip, trip or whatever it may be. Sure, we've yeah. had we've had groups in in smaller levels too, and maybe they just bite off a small part. Meet yeah. some, meet a researcher, a new researcher, or something for an hour, somewhere like that. Get in and get among it, and it's there to be used. Like all of these farms are there to be used. So you know, if you're if don't be afraid to sort of. They'll shoot me now and more for saying this, but like you know, in all we we do what we can to try and organise a little bit, and we 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 try to put on days here and there. It's not just you know once every two years. We want them conversations ongoing. So come and talk to us, like and we'll we'll, we'll listen and and we'll 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 talk stuff through with you too. All right, absolutely appreciate it, folks. Thanks for your time as thank always. You. Um, farm safely, and we'll um we'll see you next week. That's all for this week's bonus episode from the Let's Talk Dairy webinar series and don't forget to look out for more bonus episodes each week. I'll be back with the usual Dairy Edge podcast on Monday so do listen in then. I'm Stuart Childs and thanks for listening.